The good news this morning comes from Matthew, the 28th chapter, beginning at the verse numbered one. Listen for God's word. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The way Matthew tells the story about this Sunday's remarkable events, the two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, go to the tomb that morning empty-handed. There's no mention of spices. We are not told that they have anointing on their minds. They're not wondering who will roll away the stone. Maybe the women decided to go to the garden that morning to just see that everything was all right, the way many of us do when we head out to the cemetery a day or two later. We look again at the freshly turned soil. We wonder how it could be that this one who made us laugh, whose warmth and embrace we cherished, whose smile we welcomed, is no longer ours to have and to hold, except in our memories. So we steal out to the cemetery one more time, just to make sure that nothing has changed, all the while knowing that everything has. Maybe the women were wondering as they went what they could have done differently. Could they have warned Jesus not to be so in the face of the chief priests and the scribes and the Romans? Could they have done something that would have kept him from leaving the upper room that night and going off to the garden where he was arrested? What if they had really understood that that Passover meal that they shared was their last supper with him? Would they have been more attentive to him? Would they have taken notes would they have taken a mental snapshot? Would they have been more sure to say goodbye to him with a lingering hug before he walked out the door? 
You know how that is. When you relive all of the decisions, revisiting every thought, every conversation, all the what-ifs and the if-onlys. There was so much they might have wished could have gone differently. But the undeniable fact was that he was gone now. The victim of what the world does to you if you get in its way, if you cross the powers that be, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing. And he had made enemies. After all, he wasn't crucified because he was a nice guy or because he healed the sick or walked on the water or changed water into wine. He was crucified because he had crossed the political and religious authorities of his day. And so they did what they felt they had to in those politically volatile times. They silenced him. So the women went to the tomb that morning with all of this rolling around in their heads, the shock, the grief of losing him. Little did they know that as they made their way through the dew and the mist, they were quite literally crossing over from where they were to another place of God's making. They were crossing over a line of demarcation that would make all the difference now in terms of how they viewed themselves, how they viewed others, how they viewed the world around them. Tom Long from Emory University describes it this way. He writes, What Mary Magdalene and the other Mary expected to see was Jesus' grave, a monument to the sadness in their own souls, a confirmation of the cruel truth that finally mercy and righteousness are beaten to death. But somewhere along the way to the cemetery, they left one world and they entered another. Without ever knowing that they had crossed over that border, they left the old world. The old world, where hope is a minority report and might makes right and peace is not really given a chance. The old world where the rich just get richer and the weak eventually all suffer at the hand of some Pontius Pilate and where above all, dead people stay dead. And they entered instead into a startling, breathtaking world of resurrection and new life. Jesus, who had been dead as a doornail on Friday afternoon, was not in the tomb that morning. And so the world, theirs and ours, has been turned upside down. And while that sounds like good news, worthy of brass and alleluias, did you notice? It came at first as frightening, as terrifying more than anything else. So the angel at the tomb greets the women not with alleluias, but rather with words of consolation. 
Don't be afraid. Because fear was their first reaction. In fact, one of the striking things, if you haven't read the Gospels, it would be really worth looking at them, is that people almost universally, when they heard about the resurrection, they became more afraid and not less. You've heard Matthew's account. This is how Mark describes it. He writes, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. It's a strange way to end the story, don't you think? In John's gospel, even after the resurrection and the appearance of Jesus, the disciples are meeting behind closed doors. They are afraid, they are terrified because they think they might be next. Suddenly Jesus appears among them. But it's interesting, he doesn't say, now all your troubles are over. He doesn't say, now let's go to heaven and have a big party. He doesn't say, thank God the hard part is over. No, what he says, if I can paraphrase, is this. The cross didn't stick. Their plan to stop my movement didn't work. It's still going on. Matter of fact, my plan, my plan, that you love even your enemies, that you'd be willing to sacrifice and suffer and even die for the sake of love, my plan has now been vindicated. You see, from our point of view, 2,000 years later, so many people think of Easter as just this comforting little story that says spring is coming, flowers are blooming, don't worry, be happy. In fact, some people, the cynics among us, um, are so skeptical about Easter, they say it's just a crutch for people who can't handle the cold, hard realities of death. Easter is some kind of fairy tale, they say, when all of the tensions get resolved, all of the danger gets removed, everybody lives happily ever after. But that's just not what the Gospels say. Jesus says to them, I am going to my Father, and now I am going to send his Spirit to you, to you women, to you disciples, to you. Tell them the cross failed. Tell Caesar and Pilate, the chief priest, that they failed. I'm going to the Father. Now they have to contend with the likes of you. But Jerusalem is still a powder keg. Just 36 hours before, the mobs were yelling, crucify him. To be sent back to that city to tell those people that they had failed, that Jesus is on the loose, and that you're on his side. That's a dangerous assignment, should you choose to accept it. And they get that. And it scares the pants off of them. You see, that Sunday, everything changed. But not in the way that so many people think. Their lives didn't become safer. They didn't become more comfortable. 
they became more dangerous. Because Easter is more than just flowers poking through the cracks in the sidewalk. It's more than just butterflies coming from cocoons, whatever I might say during the children's message. It's more than that. Easter is Jesus alive. It means that everything that he has been saying up until then about life and death, about loving your enemies, about forgiving those who have hurt you, about welcoming the stranger into your country, about caring for the sick and the poor, everything that he has said about it being more blessed to give than to receive, or finding your life by losing it, it means that that is all true. It means that they and we have to look at ourselves differently. Think of this. In John's Gospel, Jesus says to the women, go back and tell my brothers, tell them I am returning to my father. Do you remember the last time that the disciples had seen him? James and John fell asleep while Jesus was agonizing in the garden. Simon Peter denied he even knew him. They all deserted him. What words do you think they would have used to describe themselves at that point? Failure? Loser? Coward? This is so cool. Up until that point, Jesus has called them servants. Now he calls them brothers. Because the amazing thing you see is not just that God raised Jesus from the dead, it's that he sent him back to the very people who had done these things. And not because of their performance. Their performance was atrocious. It was a gift of grace. The world has been turned upside down. They have to look at themselves and now they have to look at others in a new way. Think of this. In all four of the Gospels, the task of being the witnesses to the resurrection is given to who? It's given to the women. That sounds like nothing in the 21st century, but back in those days, it was a big deal. In the ancient world, generally, and particularly in Israel, women were never allowed to serve as witnesses in a legal dispute. You could kill somebody. A hundred women could see it. If no man did, they couldn't convict you. And yet here on Easter morning, look at who God intentionally chooses to be the witnesses. They have to look at others in a different way. So those who have no voice, those who the world doesn't listen to, they are not only recognized, they are empowered now to speak. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. But it doesn't make their life safer. It doesn't make their life more comfortable. Not theirs, not yours, not mine. In fact, it's kind of like what Jesus had said to them earlier. If anyone wants to be a part of my movement, let them take up their cross. Let them die to themselves and their old way of seeing life and let them follow me. I have been thinking this week about Easter 
in the midst of this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic? What opportunities do these days provide for us to minister in his name? This, of course, is not the first pandemic that the world or the church has faced. In the early 20th century, there was a worldwide pandemic that killed 15 million people. Prior to that, there was the plague of Marseille in the 1800s. There was the plague of London in the 16th century. The Black Plague killed some 50 million people, half of the population of Europe. I was reading this week about the Cyprian Plague that broke out in the third century. Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage at the time. 5,000 people a day died in Rome. Similar statistics were reported in Alexandria and Carthage. And in each of those cities, it was the Christian church that undertook what it could because the Romans had no national strategy for dealing with that mass disease. What did those Christians do? Well, they offered burial for those who had died. People were so overwhelmed that bodies were literally being put out into the street. And then they began to care for the sick in their homes at first and then in their churches. Deacons very quickly took on the ministry of mercy, which became one of the best known ways by which Christians were recognized. Where did they get these ideas? They got them from the one who touched the leper, who healed the woman with a flow of blood, who restored the sight of a blind man, who told about good Samaritans who stopped along the way and who said, greater things than these will you do in my name. So in the fourth century, Christians began what was the first hospital in the world. It happened in Turkey, probably in response to an epidemic of leprosy. Over the next generation or two, hospitals began to spring up all over Western Europe. Every one of them started by Christians, and most of them primarily devoted to the poor. Was it an accident that the greatest growth of Christianity was following the third century when so many cases were reported of Christians caring for those in need? That pattern continued through the centuries. In the 16th century, Martin Luther preached about how medicine and not just professional clergy is a calling from God. John Calvin uh, dealt with numerous plagues in Geneva. Cicely Saunders, the founder of hospice, was an evangelical Christian who believed that providing places for people to die was something that God had put on her heart. What does that kind of compassion and sacrifice look like in the midst of the coronavirus? Well, we see it every day as medical workers head off to St. John's and St. Joe's and Providence and Henry Ford and Beaumont, many of them members of local churches, all of them in need of our daily prayers. We see it as restaurant owners provide food for those workers and for others who are in need. We see it in our own church. 
providing space for the homeless during SOS. We see it in deacons and elders reaching out to every family in the congregation with a listening ear. We see it in neighbors delivering groceries to each other's doorsteps, in companies making face masks, in children painting with these pastel colors signs of hope for passers-by. We see it in millionaires providing money for cures and vaccines, some of which will never come to fruition. And we see it in smaller donations that people make to charities and push in their pledge envelopes under the church door. Because Easter is not just a holiday, it's not just a holy day, it's not just a wish for someday. Easter is a way of doing life, of finding ways to proclaim that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Don't be afraid, the angel said. Which, of course, is not the same thing as saying there is nothing out there to be afraid of because there is plenty. But there is something There is someone out there bigger than our fear. In the world you will have trouble, he said. But be of good courage. I have overcome the world. I know. You came looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not in that tomb. He is alive in and among you. And he is going before you today and every day. Hallelujah. 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 Amen.